and 18 high school students, a combination of boys and girls, to Tanzania. From Kenya, we were going to climb Old Ngai, the mountain of the gods. It's still an active volcano in Tanzania, and we, we were going to go and climb this baby. But in, before we went, they had us set up our camp. We were, you know, rough camping out in the middle of nowhere. They took us on what they said was going to be this leisurely little river walk. We were in some places climbing like this, hand over fist. It was no leisurely little river walk. And I'm afraid of heights, and so that was an interesting um, experience for me. But our guide assured us that we were 100 miles in any direction from civilization. So there, you know, there was no one around, he assured us. And when we came back from the river walk, we were dirty from camping. We were hot. We were sweaty. We thought we needed to be rejuvenated before we climbed Oldoniel and Guy starting at 3 a.m. the next morning. So Mike, our guide, took us to the river, and he pointed the guys this direction, and he pointed the girls this direction, and he said, you just, just go up a little ways. You'll know where to go. The river kind of calms down, and there's this nice settled pool. And it's, it, you, know, you can stand in it, but it's deep enough that you can wash your hair. You can bathe there. You'll be fine. Remember, we are 100 miles in any direction from civilization. So being the good missionaries that we were, and the, the kids, the girls, all MKs, you know, we just took our, you know, what we'd gone hiking in, and our kikois and our congas, and we just spread them all out, and we climbed into the river as we were, <laughs> so to speak. And so we were bathing, and the girls were not noisy at all. It was just so refreshing. They were kind of floating. They were enjoying the water, washing their hair. And all of a sudden, I, I was kind of turned with my back. So I was watching them, and one of the girls goes, <clears throat> Mama Foro. They, they called us Foro and Mama Foro. <clears throat> Mama Foro. And I said, what? And she goes, like that. And I turned around, and here from out of nowhere comes a Maasai warrior, all dressed, you know, full red robes, spear in hand, you know, just as primitive as primitive can be. And he walks up, and he takes his stand <laughs> with his spear. And I'm thinking, okay, great. Now what do I do? And I kind of just ignore him. I, I say to the girls, ignore him. He'll go away. <laughs> He'll lose interest if we just stay in the water and he can see nothing. So stay in the water. Just ignore him. Do your thing. He'll go away. So again, I'm just kind of relaxing in the water, washing my hair. And, and, the, and the girls go, Mom, Mama. And here come two or three more <laughs> Maasai warriors. <laughs> and they all kind of make a little line around the pool. And, and I'm still thinking to the girls. And by now we're kind of going, you know, we're rattle, starting to rattle and our teeth are chattering. And I said, just ignore them. Just ignore them. They'll go away. They'll go away. 
<laughs> kind of go back to what we're doing. And it wasn't long, and I kind of heard some rustling, and I looked around. Here come probably eight more. It was before cell phones. They didn't have drums sing signaling that all these white girls were in a pool. How they knew, 100 miles right from any civilization. Here were all these men just all around the entire river watching us. They weren't going away. I, I kept looking because I half expected somebody to bring out the popcorn and the, and the sodas, and they just stood there. So what do you do? I'm the adult. So out I get, parade myself in front of them, all the way over to the rocks where we have laid our stuff, grab my kikoi, wrap it around me, tie it, and then I, one by one, pick up each of the girls' kikois, and I walk to the river and stand with their wraps out like this so that each one can slowly climb out of the water because they're so embarrassed, and then they can wrap themselves. But those men had a show. <laughs> it was the best. I know they're still talking about it in Maasai land in northern Tanzania. So anyway, it was just, it was a scream. I, what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? So with that in mind, <laughs> giants. We, we ended with giants yesterday. I just want to remind you that when fear is driving, unbelief is in the passenger seat. The two of them go together. I want... I wish I could spend more time on that. I really want you to explore that and ask yourself the question, what am I fearful of? And how, does that, how is that reflected in my faith? Now here is the next slide. The writer of Hebrews says, take care, brothers or sisters, lest there be in you any sign of an unbelieving, an evil, unbelieving heart. He uses this term evil, and, and that word evil in this context does not mean like we would think of terrorists. The word evil there, when it's broken down and translated, literally means unhealthy or diseased. So take care, lest there be in you any kind of a sign of a diseased heart. That is the root, at really, out of which our fear springs. And when he points that out to us, what he's wanting to remind us, it's not a condemnation as much as it is stay on the alert because we do have an enemy who prowls around seeking those he, whom he can de devour. And what he's saying here is be careful that you're not letting your hearts get unhealthy. You do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself, to get into the presence of God, to to get onto Sabbath Island so that your heart stays healthy. Because if you do not, what happens? You are not led into that place of Sabbath rest. And so this is just a word of caution.
There's more, though. My husband and I went camping in the, here in the mountains of Colorado not too long ago. We went up with our Polaris Ranger, and we camped for a night. And the next morning, I got up, put all of our stuff out on the picnic table, and all of a sudden, these little cute, teeny tiny little birds started invading our camp. And they would snatch away great big pieces of food off of our table. How they carried them, these little tiny things, I will never know. And I looked at them and I thought, what in the world? And they said, oh, I just hate camp robbers. And that's what that little bird is called in the mountains of Colorado. They are called camp robbers. And so this is a picture of one of those little guys. Don't they look innocent and cute? <laughs> they do. However, we have joy robbers, just like those camp robbers that swoop into the camps of our lives and they want to rob us of our joy. Number one, people. There will always be people in our lives who hurt us, wound us, annoy us. And the camp robber of people often are used to steal away our joy. It's why Jesus so intentionally tried to pray for unity. Do you remember in John 17 how he said, I pray, Father, that, that we will be one and, and that I will be one with you and they will be one with me because in that way the world will believe that you sent me. So if the camp robbers can steal away our unity as believers in Christ and take away our joy, it is just one more significant way that we lose our, not only do we lose our joy, but we lose our testimony that the enemy wants to steal away from us and our testimony that he wants to kill. So people, you can go back to, people are definitely, uh, probably one of the number one things I have seen on the mission field, on my own station, that cause the most disruption in our lives. So what do we do about those people? Because if only everybody did things my way, everything would be fine. And I actually, I mean, it's sad to say, I, if I have to admit it, that is, my, that is my thinking. And the Apostle Paul, don't laugh at me. No. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just giving you a hard time. The Apostle Paul goes to the Philippians, and remember, he had a couple of people in the Philippians church who were not dwelling together in unity, and he says, you tell Yodia and Syntyche that they need to get along. They need to dwell together in harmony. But before he points the finger at those two women, he talks to the church as a whole and says to them, Do you, has Christ really done anything in your lives? Has he? I want you to evaluate. Has Christ done anything in your lives? Because if he has, make my joy complete and be of the same mind.
one with another. And then he goes on, he kind of explains how we need to have this attitude in us that was in Christ Jesus, and he breaks that down for us. Be humble. But he's very clear about, don't just look out for your own interests. Don't just, but look out for others. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. <clears throat> and then, Dad, Gunnett, he uses this word, or conceit. And if I get real and I explore what's going on in my life, a lot of times, a lot of issues can be resolved within my world if I just, ha if I just stop, stop and take a breath and go, I don't always have to be right. I don't have to, I think I am right. I mean, after all, I've lived 62 years I have a lot of experiences under my belt. I have a lot of answers. Just ask me. Because I can tell you how to do it, and I can tell you how to do it well. But that's not my job. My job isn't to fix or to control. My job is to be humble and have that attitude of Christ, that mind that was in him, to be humble and to walk in forgiveness. Go ahead and go to the next one. The second one is places. Don't we often think we know where we should be? And don't we often want to tell the Lord where he, we think he ought to send us? Dear Lord, I will go anywhere for you, but please don't send me to inner city New York. <laughs> Dear Lord, I will go anywhere for you, but please don't make me go to Africa. Yes. <laughs> there we go. I will go anywhere. And yet Paul, in Philippians, in his book on joy, he praises the Lord for putting him in prison. He saw even prison as a gift. It doesn't matter where we're put, as long as we keep in mind our mission, why he's put us here. He wants us to be gospel givers no matter where we are. So any place, even prison, can become a place of joy if we can look at it as God's gift and change our perspective to God's perspective. But again, we get stuck in our want-tos instead of seeing the overall picture of God's design for us. The third one is, of course, problems. They come in various sizes. They look different to all of us. And James writes, and it's one of those verses that I wish I could cut out of my Bible, but I can't because then I would be defiling the Word of God. But James is very clear, count it all joy. My sisters, when you encounter various trials. And then he goes on and he tells us why we should count it all joy. Because it's going to produce in us steadfastness. And that steadfastness is going to grow and it's going to continue to make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
uh, it's those two words, perfect and complete, that I, I really looked at. Because that's why Paul says we can count it all joy when we're going through these various trials. We count it joy because God is working in us in every problem, in every circumstance, in every persecution, in every abuse, in every trial, in every suffering. He's working in us to produce a greater depth of character that's going to look more like Jesus. To be perfect means that we are mature. He's going to grow us to be more mature. Believe me, I know I lack maturity, especially when it comes to dealing with people, which is why I put them number one. Mature. The word complete means without blemish. So those trials we go through, those things we don't like, the things we want to fight God on and blame him for, and the, the, the things that cause us to doubt him the most, is he actually working in my life? We can be assured, yes, he is. Because out of those things is going to come this Christ-like character. I am going to be more like Jesus. I'm going to become holier without blemish. I'm going to be more mature and grown up and grown deeper in my faith. So I can handle anything I have come to realize. I can face any problem with joy as long as I know that deep inside me, God is refining my character to look more like Christ. And it's a perspective we need to remember, particularly when we're in the middle. It's something I think we ought to write down and put on our refrigerators. I can walk through this with joy, knowing out of it comes Christ-like character in me. I can. The next one, from Problems Pedestals. We've talked a lot about how you get put on pedestals. But guess what? We put things on pedestals too. And this one, I, as I bring these things to you, I want you to know, as I started this journey of joy, I, I did not really know what to expect. But let me tell you, it's a lot like praying for patience. Don't. Because you're going to get lots of opportunities to put it into practice. So if you're praying for joy, you're going to get a lot of experience with camp robbers. And so I, in the midst of all of this, I started reading a book by Tim Keller, which I highly recommend, called Counterfeit Gods. It's not a big book. It's pretty little. In fact, I just, I read it in a couple of hours, but I I devoured it, and the entire book of mine is underlined because it was so convicting to me. But the, probably the most convicting statement out of the whole book is this. He says, good things become supreme things. So I want you to explore that concept. Good things often become supreme things. Here's how it worked in my life. I told you, my happy place is having my 14 grandkids all together with me and those people they bring with them, the adults. 
I love it when they're home. I also told you I'm highly introverted. Surprisingly, my husband is introverted too. Not as much as I am, but he's still introverted. And we recharge by being alone. But I want my kids with me. And so I will sacrifice alone time to have the kids home. Come and stay as long as you can. That's my mantra. And his is, come and stay three days. <laughs> That's about all that I can handle. And really, if I were honest, it's about all I can handle, two, three to five days. Because then both of us start getting kind of cranky and irritable and not very pretty. So I, but I can't be honest with myself about that. Because I want them there. I want them there real bad. And that has caused between us no small amount of argument because I want him to come and stay. He wants him to come but leave <laughs> in the appropriate timing. And we've had this converse, conversation. And so to honor him, we've kind of limited the amount of time that the kids come and stay, and we've reached a happy medium on that. But as I was reading Keller's book... I recognized my greatest idol is my family. It's my family. It drives my emotions. If my kids are happy, I'm happy. If my kids are in pain, I am in pain. I think about them. I pray for them a lot. I'm consumed by them. My finances, my resources, my energy often goes to my kids before anything. And they don't even live close. My kids have become an idol. My ministry has become an idol. I consume over it. I worry about it. My insecurities flare up because of it. You know, I engage a lot of time into it. Good things, supreme things that aren't bad often become idols on pedestals. And when they do, they rob us of our joy. I, I just want you to ask yourself a few questions in this regard. What drives your emotions? What makes you sad, angry, joyful even? Explore those emotions. What drives them and controls them? Because those things, it, it doesn't have to be but they can be idols. What consumes your mental thinking? Where do you place your mental energies? Those things can be, please hear me say they aren't, they, they aren't just solely, but can be idols. Where do you get your identity from? What gives you your identity and your sense of security and safety? That can be an idol. What consumes your, uh, I think I said this, your mental thinking, but what also consumes your energy and your resources? Those things can also be idols. And sadly, I think in the ministry, those are things, because we don't have a bale erected in our backyard, we think we're okay. But we may have bales erected in our hearts and some altars built up, and we need to 
ask ourselves some pretty intense questions and we need to remove some bricks. Last of all is pollution. I just thought, in going with the P theme, I thought this was a nicer way to say sin. What's polluting your life? We're, we're human, ladies. We have sins. We are not sinless. We are moving toward that perfect and complete as the Lord is wanting to produce it in us. But in the meantime, our hearts are, are going to are going to have joy snatched away and something replaced in there called sin. And David is such a great example of this. Psalm 51 is a perfect psalm to explore how he dealt with it. But remember in Psalm 51, somewhere around verse 12, he says to the Lord, he cries out to him, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. His joy was gone. In fact, as he describes his life, he is physically ill because he has not dealt with sin. But that is also true of an unhealthy heart. If we don't keep our hearts healthy, it has to come out somewhere Remember, those of you who are in Elizabeth's grief and loss session, she talked about the beach ball. We expend a lot of energy holding down that beach ball. Well, if we do that somewhere, something has to give. And most often, do you know where it's going to give? Your physical health. And that was what's happening in David's life. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And it wasn't until David literally laid down before the Lord on his face, weeping and confessing his sins. I am the man that that joy was restored unto him. All of us have camp robbers. These are probably the top five. These are the ones that, as I have studied, have crept into my life. I could stand here probably for another three hours and tell you story after story after story of ways the enemies crept in in the last few months, zoomed in, and before I knew it, had robbed my joy and used one of these things to do it. So take time. It's part of the healing process. It's, it's part of adjustment. It's, it's, it's so healthy to take time to explore these things on your journey to joy. But there are joy restorers, and that's what we're going to talk about now. I need a Nathan in my life. I want you to, to invite some of these things or make room for some of these things in your life. I know it's hard. And it's difficult to find safe people, sometimes on the mission field. But we all need Nathans. We need truth-tellers. David invited Nathan into his, into his world. And because of that, it makes me realize that for David, even though Nathan was a prophet and he spoke truth, David appreciated his words. And when I look at the way Nathan presented truth to David, I can see why. 
Not only was he a truth teller, but he was very creative and gentle and wise. He knew David. He knew what David would receive. He knew David's tenderness towards shepherds and sheep. And so because of that, he was able to speak pretty hard words into David's life. We've got to have people like that, people we trust, people who know us well enough and we know they love us, that we allow to come to us and speak words of truth to us. We need Nathans in our life. We live in a new wonderful era of internet. We can Skype with those Nathans if they're not on the field with us, but we need them. Secondly, we need a good Samaritan in our life. You know these stories, so I'm not taking the time to go over them. But we all need a good Samaritan. A good Samaritan is someone who is a, he goes out of his, they go out of their way for us. They know we're wounded, they know we're bleeding, they know we're messy, and they don't care. They pick us up, they wipe us off, they're gentle with us, they encourage us, they take us to the place we need to go where we can heal, they give us time, they pour out their resources on us, they are sacrificial, We all need good Samaritans in our life, all of us. We need to look intentionally for those people. And again, we live in a new era, Skype, FaceTime, Internet, emails, text messages, Twitter. I don't know what you use for media, but engage with people who will be that, who will allow you to be your ugliest, messiest, most vulnerable at any time. And they will come along and they will bind your wounds in the name of Jesus Christ. And they will help you be restored to joy. We need on the road to watch for warning signs along the journey. If I had put my map back up and if I'd had time, I was going to put little yellow signs like this all along the map that said un on it. Warning signs of un. Over the last few months, these are some of my uns. Unrealistic expectations. I am terrible at this. Not only do I put unrealistic expectations on myself because I am a perfectionist, I tend to put unrealistic expectations on other people and therefore I set them up for failure every single time. Unrealistic expectations. That is a warning sign. If you find yourself doing that, you can know it's a, it's a camp robber. So I'm going to list these things. I might address a couple of them. All of these have been on my blog the last few weeks. So you can find them expounded on there and read my horrible first-person experiences with them. Unreasonable questioning. I put on there especially self-doubting. Questions about your own self. The number one warning sign that I'm in trouble and I'm going to let a camp robber come into my life and steal something away from me, most likely my joy, is when I start questioning my identity in Christ. We all do it. I don't care how old you get, we will never find victory in that area. All of us have some area where we question and we wonder our worth, our significance, and who we really are. But let me tell you just this before I move on. 
If you don't, are not aware and you are not walking in the ident- your identity in Christ, you cannot walk in courage and confidence in your ministry. And so we have to come back and lay that foundation every single time that self-questioning starts coming up in our head. It is probably the one thing that will undermine ministry faster than anything else. And I know this because of personal experience. Unplanned waiting, unforeseen circumstances. When you live in third world countries or even second world countries, that is huge. Waiting in lines to have your passport stamped, only to find your passport holding up a table leg on the passport officer's desk. Standing in line for an hour only to have them say, oh, you are at the wrong window. You must go over there. (laughs) Unplanned waiting, unforeseen circumstances. (laughs) Airports are my worst nightmare. An unclear future. I liken unclear futures to driving through a blizzard in Colorado. Every so often, you just have to pull off the road, snap the icicles off your windshield wipers, and wipe off your headlights because you've got to be able to see at least five feet in front of you, and you creep along one step at a time. But, oh, for those of us who are transitioning right now, your joy is threatened big time because this is a huge warning sign in your life. Unclear future. Unbalanced and unaddressed busyness. We are type A personalities, missionaries. We are doers, doers, doers. We don't know how to be, be, be. And we don't want to be, be, be. (laughs) We want to do, we want it done, we want our checklist complete. Yep. (laughs) Yep, we do. Well, let me read you something you aren't going to (laughs) like. I just have to find it. It's in my little pile of papers here of my slides. I read this just a while back, and I, oh my goodness, was it convicting. Out of a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Some of you have read it, I can tell. All right, here it is. Are you ready? When we are busier than God requires us to be, we do violence to ourselves. I could stop there. I won't. (laughs) Thomas Merton understood this, and he wrote, There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence. Activism, as in being too active and overwork. The Russian pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands. The frenzy kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. And when we do this violence to ourselves, we're unable to love others in and through the love of Christ. Here's another good quote, Elizabeth Elliot. 
One reason we're so harried and hurried is that we make yesterday and tomorrow our business. <laughs> when all that legitimately concerns us is today. If we really have too much to do, there are some items on our agenda which God did not put there. <laughs> Let us submit the list to him. Ever thought about that? Submit your to-do list to him and ask him to indicate which items we must delete. There's always time to do the will of God. If we're too busy to do that, we're too busy. Okay, I'll stop. Undermining shame is the last one. And uh, again, shame is that thing in our lives which we just cannot put words to. It's that thing which we feel has caused us to be dirty and defiled. It's not that I did something wrong, but I am wrong. I am bad. And shame is also very undermining. And, and the Lord does not want us to live in shame. The thing that helps us with shame the most, and again, another one I am very familiar with in my own world because of my past. But the way we really start to eliminate shame is by wrapping words around it. And, and beginning to form stories that show Jesus in the middle as the hero of even our shame. Shameful things. So, Joy Restorer's last one. I need a healthy attitude of in spite of and but if not. You know the stories in Habakkuk. You know the story in Daniel. The in spite of, in spite of the fact that there's no cattle in our fields, in spite of the fact that we've been on the mission field for years and we've yet to see a convert, in spite of the fact that I have trouble with my team, in spite of the fact that God has called me home and I do not want to be here, in spite of the fact that I have funds to raise and we are struggling to find supporters, in spite of, yet, will I praise him. Yet will I rejoice. And as we rejoice and praise and sing, worship to the Lord, the joy re returns. We need an attitude of in spite of, and we need an attitude of but if not. In the fiery furnace, or prior to the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, O king, our God is able to deliver us. We have a big God. Let us list our, his character qualities to you. And as we do, we're going to remind ourselves of who our God is. But if not, if he chooses not to deliver us, he's still God. So in spite of the circumstances, and in spite of the fiery trials you find yourself in, there is a place of joy to be found. So learn to rejoice in the midst of them. We are quickly going on to session three. It won't take us long to finish that up. So go ahead and switch to the next slide. I want you to know joy is missional. Refreshing fruit of joy is not meant just for my benefit. 
It is not meant just for me. As I started this journey, what was it I wanted? I wanted joy as my destination. I found joy in the journey, but here's what I realized. I wanted joy for me. See, I wanted to stand up here and I wanted you to say, I want to be her. Look at her joy. I wanted joy for my benefit. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit. When we are healthy spiritually, we produce fruit of the Spirit. And when we do, it is not meant for me to hold on to because there's so much of it, it will become rotten. It is meant to be given out. It is meant to be missional. That is part of your joy job. So, how do we do this? How do we become joy givers? We live a life of grace and peace. I loved this verse. Those who plan peace find joy. Proverbs 12, 20. Those who plan for peace find joy. Again, it kind of correlates with people being a joy robber or a camp, a camp robber. But if we plan for peace and learn to extend grace and not have to be right and not live in that conceited narcissistic place of wanting it our way, we find joy. That's why Paul addresses almost every letter, grace and peace to the church. Go ahead to the next one. Live a life of generosity. The New Testament church, they were a generous church. But I, initially I had gratitude here. Live a life of gratitude. And I changed it to generosity. And here's why. As we start thanking the Lord for the things that we have, and we start living a life of gratitude. And most of you have probably read uh, Ann Voskamp's book, A Thousand Gifts. And, and over and over and over again, it, the scriptures tell us to give thanks, be thankful always. The more we're thankful, the more we appreciate, the more gratefulness fills our heart. We realize how much we've been given. And so that just naturally spills over into generosity. Generosity is a huge way to give joy. We see it very rarely. But it's a huge way to be a joy giver. The next one is to live a life of gladness. You don't have a space for that. Just throw it in your notes. There are probably more than 200 verses, I should have written the number down, that use the word rejoice and gladness. It is a visible expression of your joy. Learn to celebrate those things that you are joyful for. Learn to live a life of celebration. Be glad and rejoice. Shout for joy. Joy has to be expressive, ladies. It's not just meant to be stuffed inside. So let that out. Like we talked about with our salvation, we got to let it roar. As we learn to love our lostness, we appreciate our foundness. But also, the more joy we realize God gives to us, it comes out. So it's missional. The next one. Live a life that fulfills God's intended purpose by being storytellers. That comes from building those altars of remembrance. That comes as we walk through shame 
and start wrapping words around some of our most embarrassing stories. That comes when we see God in the midst of our life doing something great. And again, never forget to rehearse the faithfulness of God. Next one. Joy givers are storytellers. Here's my biblical basis for that. Exodus 17, 14. They have just defeated the Amalekites. Moses, Lord says to Moses, write this down. Write this down as something to be remembered and you make sure Joshua hears it. Write it down. Tell the story. Joshua needs to hear it. And therefore, Moses wrote it down, and we have the Pentateuch. Ha! Huh. If Moses can write a Pentateuch, what can you write with your stories? Last of all, the thing about giving joy away, it always results in more joy. It really is a backdoor to joy. We can never outgive joy, but you know where it begins? It begins at home. It starts at home. The things we have talked about this week start in your personal space. In 1 Chronicles 16.33, David is coming back into Jerusalem with the ark. He is excited. He is worshiping. He is enthusiastic. He strips off his clothes as an expression of his joy. He's singing. He's dancing wildly with abandon celebrates with the people that the ark has been returned to Jerusalem and they will be blessed. And the very last verse in that whole story says, and David returned home to bless his family. That is where you start. Ladies, thank you for the time we've had together. I will see you again. It may be here. It may be there. It may be in the air. <laughs> but I look forward to seeing you again.